The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Knesen. Today, I'm grateful to have Professor Risa Liebrowitz here on the show as my guest. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Professor Liebrowitz is a professor of labor and employment law in the Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Her academic interests include corporatization of the university, academic freedom, and the role of higher education in a democratic society. Professor Lieberwitz is here to talk with us about her recently published paper on vulnerability theory and higher education. Sarah, really quickly, what we always start off our interviews with is a 30-second elevator speech about how you would describe vulnerability theory. Yeah, well, the, the word that I always go back to when I think about vulnerability theory is relational. It's very much about the relationships that we create and we build in society and the potential for making those relationships contribute to the well-being of everybody in that society. And that's very much the relationship between the government, state, and the individuals in a society. But it's also about relationships among individuals, relationships between the state and institution and relationships between those institutions and individuals. And if you think about that web of relational uh, individuals and circumstances and, and um, structures in society, they can be built toward a goal of well-being. And the state is central through vulnerability theory to taking a role of distributing resources and providing opportunities for institutions and individuals in a society to build their own resilience and to find their own interests in ways that then contribute to the public good. So how did your interest in vulnerability theory begin? Well, my interest in vulnerability theory began in my discussions with Professor Martha Feynman. I've known Professor Feynman for many years. We've worked together for many years and it's always been such a pleasure professionally and personally because I always learn from the kinds of creative endeavors she's engaged in and they've really uh, built for me many of the ideas that I've used in my research in multiple ways. And vulnerability theory is the latest in the ways in which Martha and I have uh, engaged in work with each other and discussions and workshops that spoke to me because it really was a way to express and analyze issues that I was already looking at. So in addressing questions about the role of higher education in society, which of course fits more broadly into education generally, but the role of higher education in society, the uh, analytical structures, the thematic approaches of vulnerability theory open up doors for doing the kind of analysis and work 
that, again, to go back to address those relational questions, the role of the state and how we can build institutions of higher education in ways that contribute to the well-being of the public. So the paper that you published recently is on vulnerability theory in higher education. Can you tell me a little bit about what the state role is in shaping higher education currently with the way that the laws are structured? And I know you talked about the U.S. and the U.K., so this is a big question, but (laughs) you can take it however you'd like. And then how is that different from the ideal role of the state from a vulnerability perspective and promoting the public good? Right. This is a a huge topic and a huge area of study. I've been studying it for decades and it never gets old to me. I guess to some extent, it's always interesting to study yourself. I'm in higher education. I'm interested in higher education. I, I believe that higher education is essential for a society to serve the public and to serve the individual needs and interests of people in in the society. So for me, studying higher education, as I said earlier, studying higher education is certainly part of studying education as a whole. But my focus has been on higher education and its potential, as well as its current positive aspects, its historical positive aspects, as well as the flaws that have been present historically and currently in higher education. So it's a complicated process of relationships between the state and higher education, our visions of what it can do, our visions of what it does do. And with that kind of general introduction, I think that vulnerability theory is really important in the piece that I just did because it enabled me to think through basic concepts about the traditional role of higher education to serve a public mission. Just now focusing for the moment on the United States. In the United States, whether you have a public university, state university, or a private university, which would be generally a nonprofit university, whether public or private, the goals and the missions that are traditional in higher education is to serve the public interest, to serve a public mission. So my question is, well, what does that mean? And you can see then how it fits immediately into vulnerability theory, because that theory then asks, how can we build institutions in ways where the state through its funding, the state through its legal structures, can create a a scaffolding, you could say, a, a, a really strong foundation for the institutions of higher education, whether public or private, to serve the public mission, to serve the public interest. Obviously, funding is part of that. And um, in the 1950s and 60s, post-World War II in the United States, and then a little bit later in the UK, public funding really increased in a way that was very important to expand the access to public education by students who otherwise couldn't afford it or who didn't come from kind of the political or economic elite that um, higher education had been serving. So the role of the state to expand access to students is enormously important, including in private 
institutions of higher education, the role of the state to reinforce democratic principles in education generally and in higher education is also extremely important. So one of the key concepts that enables faculty to serve the public interest through higher education is the concept of academic freedom. That's very much a democratic notion of having freedom in your work to pursue teaching interests, to pursue research interests, to speak publicly, uh, to engage with your colleagues and with students and the public in ways that are controversial, that test new areas, that challenge the status quo. And the way that I think of it is that bites the hand that feeds you. So you should be able to be quite critical of your employer, the higher education institution, to engage in democratic governance within that institution, and to, as I said, teach and research and speak publicly in ways that challenge the status quo and that's controversial. The more the state can help to support that kind of democratic process in education and in higher education, the more the public will benefit not only through access by students, but through research that isn't serving anybody's interest, but the public interest. Through teaching that serves the public interest by enabling students to develop new ideas and to think about their place in society. The state has an enormous role in being able to, um, through public funding and through other kinds of support mechanisms to build resilient institutions of higher education that work for the public. You talked a little bit about academic freedom and how important that is for democratization. How does privatization and the corporatization of education impact academic freedom? And it kind of sounds like the democratization of education coincided with the corporatization of education. Is that coincidence or are the two related? Yeah, so I just talked about the potential for higher education to serve the public mission that higher education says that it's serving. And I think that potential is great, greatly enhanced by the more we protect academic freedom and the more the state and the institutions see academic freedom at the core of faculty having freedom and students having freedoms to explore different ways of ordering society to explore different ways that science should work and who should science serve, different ideas about the humanities, about the social sciences, about the law. That's the great potential for higher education. And it's been partially and importantly um, successful in many ways. But at the same time, whether it's the United States or the UK, or other countries where you have a, course, uh, a coexistence of a political democracy and an economic system of capitalism, you're immediately running into contradictions. So from the very beginning of, let's say, the modern university in the United States, there were contradictions right away. If you think about the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, which is when the modern university in the United States was developing into research institutions that were also teaching institutions, 
in that period of time was also the period of industrialization and the growth of capitalism and the growth of great wealth. You can see that immediately there's a clash. So in the United States, for example, as the social sciences were being developed in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, in particular the early 20th century, when Darwinism was taking hold in the natural sciences, that faculty were creating an expertise and an independence that immediately clashed with clergy who were running universities at that time. And then as they became more secular universities with businessmen on uh, boards of directors or boards of trustees, there was a clash between the faculty who were wanting to pursue academic freedom and the people who were running the universities who were more connected to corporations and corporate donors who were saying, well, a university could really serve our industrial interests. That contradiction between uh, capitalism and democracy in the system of higher education is one that's continued to be a contradiction. So as you pointed out, when we think about post-World War II and what's been called the massification of higher education with greater public funding, that expanded democratic potential even as post-World War II, you have these continued contradictions and perhaps deepening contradictions in, uh, through anti-communist policies in the United States, anti-Soviet policies, that a lot of that public funding was motivated by a vision of competition between the United States and capitalism and the Soviet Union and socialism or communism that clash continues. It continues today and in the 1960s, even as things opened up and there was, I think, terrific activism on campuses, which was very much a democratic expression of wanting to change society in the 1960s. Even as that opened up, there were forces that of course were developing so that in the mid seventies into the 1980s, privatization uh, through the Reagan era in the United States, the Thatcher era in the UK, privatization then really pushed back against that kind of democratic opening and led to the corporatization issues that I study all the time now. And I've been studying for decades now. So it's a constant push pull. It's a constant competition between democratic forces and really authoritarian forces of, of capitalism, more of a top-down vision that's been in place since the late 19th century and that continues today. So that's the kind of overview of what I think you were raising of this simultaneous ongoing push-pull contest for uh, who will have the greatest power within the university and how it will be expressed. And there's a lot more that I can say about academic freedom and how it came about in the United States. But let me uh, see if that's something that you'd like to talk about at this point. I'd love to hear more about that. And 
Well, I wonder, is it difficult for you to be in this space where you're thinking about potential and thinking about possibility, right? You're in a very open world of possibility of imagining how things can be, how they ought to be while studying how things are, how things were, and consistently coming up against and writing about these contradictions that exist and a world that is very opposite to what perhaps you would like it to be. And I understand that, you know, these things do change over time and that it takes a long time for them to change, but is it difficult to be writing and imagining and thinking in that space? It's all of the above. It's hopeful. It's frustrating. It's difficult. It's um, joyful. I think that's life and it's life in the middle of contradictions. So I swing oftentimes from utter despair to very feeling very optimistic and all the places in between. I think the only way to actually try to envision and work towards a more positive future is to actually come to terms with the fact that we are living in a very flawed society and have done that before we were here and will be flawed in all likelihood after, but we're no longer around as you know individuals, but to think about contributing to making things better. And sometimes there can be short-term ways in which one can contribute. For example, I'm very active on campus in governance. I have a role in addition to my role as a faculty member. I'm the general counsel for the National American Association of University Professors, which was formed in 1915, which is how academic freedom really came about. Um, I haven't been with it quite that long, but I've been the general counsel. Now I'm in to my seventh year, I guess, of being the general counsel for the AAUP. And through that kind of work and my activism on campus in faculty governance, and we have a chapter here at Cornell where the AAUP, which is the shortened name of the organization, we have a local Cornell chapter. That work as an activist also enables me to maintain an optimism as a scholar. So just to kind of put my philosophy about this forward, I've for many, many years rejected the notion that being a scholar is inconsistent with being an activist. To me, the vision for contributing to a society through what I do in teaching and in research is to think about the way that being a scholar activist is consistent. And it seems to me that to, to also connect it to vulnerability studies and theory, that this is what vulnerability theory is also expressing that there is an integration that we should be after, that the role of the government, the role of our philosophical approaches, the role of the way we legislate, the role, the way in which we create institutions and we provide choices for individuals should be one that's very much embodied, that's very much in the people and the, their lived existence in the material conditions that we are facing. And so if I'm studying the law and I'm studying higher education and 
how it says it should work in the public interest, how it does work. I'm looking at the way it works on the ground. I'm looking at the vision I have for a society and I'm thinking about how my critique and my writing can help move us toward that vision. And I'm thinking about the same things when I'm working in my role as writing amicus briefs for the AAUP or working on campus to try to improve participation through faculty governance. To me, it's very, very highly integrated. And that enables me then to feel more hopeful because I'm not just simply engaging in a critique that's, well, this is a problem, it is a problem, but I'm thinking about where can I go in my research in it and how can that help not only me, but others to envision social change in a way that's actually meaningful. It doesn't mean that I'm not discouraged. Oftentimes I am discouraged and frustrated, but that's the nature of being an activist. One has to be, in spite of everything, a bit optimistic about that potential. And, and I'd actually like to connect this to the origins of, of academic freedom and the AAUP, if that's okay, good. So um, sometimes when I'm feeling discouraged about corporatization and the way in which the university has shifted much more to kind of a corporate model of acting like a, a market actor to market the university in ways that commodify teaching, commodify learning, that serve economic interests of the university to make money through uh, commercializing research, the way in which universities have created these close partnerships with industry. And this is again, a US and UK trend as well as beyond the US and the UK. I think about that and the way that we have um, attacks on tenure and the growing precarity of the academic profession and how hard it is to fight back against that because this is very much the privatization and a neoliberal agenda since the 1980s in the United States. It's really hard to fight against that. And it undermines academic freedom to again, bite the hand that feeds you and to pursue independent research and teaching. Very hard to do that when tenure and job security is a disappearing phenomenon and where we're encouraged to think about teaching and research very much in a commercial way. Very hard to fight against that. So what do I think about? Well, when did academic freedom start to take hold in the United States? When were faculty demanding academic freedom? It was during this late 19th century early 20th century period, when there were no labor laws in place in the United States, there were no labor protections at all. Everybody was in a precarious position. And most people today in the United States still are in terms of their employment. But at that time, there were no labor laws at all. So what did faculty do at that time? They said, we have goals in mind and as experts in social sciences, in the humanities, in the research, in, in, the, um, in the natural sciences, we have expertise and we should be able to act independently in pursuing our teaching and our research and our public speech as, um, whether it's through newspapers or other kinds of what we would call extramural speech, this kind of public speech. Faculty envisioned that kind of structure at work for themselves which was, as I said earlier, totally in contradiction to what 
the people running the universities, the administrators, the presidents, and the corporate donors had in mind. So what did faculty do at that time when there were no labor laws? They organized. And that's what people do when they are working and they want rights and they need to demand them against the people who are running the business. And this was very much the way that administrators were running universities at that time. And, ex and extraordinarily in creating the American Association of University Professors in 1915, the AUP, this was an organized effort to protest faculty being fired because they were speaking and engaging in academic work that clashed with the interests of industrialists like Stanford. Everybody knows Stanford University, it's a great university. Well, Leland Stanford was a railroad magnate. And after he died, his widow insisted that the president fire an economist who was saying things about labor issues and public utilities, labor issues, the railroads that clashed with the Stanford kind of vision from the personal standpoint. And so there were multiple instances of that in the United States. The AUP was formed in response to that and put out a declaration of principles about academic freedom, about the job security of tenure, and about the right of faculty to participate democratically in the institution where they work. Now, that is a pretty bold vision at that time. And what's extraordinary is how successful it was. In 1940, there was a new statement put out by the AAUP in a joint statement with an association of American colleges that agreed that academic freedom was a core, a fundamental value and norm that faculty should be able to exercise within higher education and that tenure, the strong job security of tenure is essential to protect that academic freedom and that governance and self-governance is also a core to enabling faculty to do that work. You know, that's quite, um, quite successful. And I'll just say one more thing about that is that it was done as what I call an extra legal matter. This wasn't done through the law. This was done through organizing outside of legislation to put into effect these sorts of what we consider rights. Are they enforceable at law? That can be a little tricky. But if they're institutionally embedded and accepted, this is the idea through vulnerability theory of the resilience of the institution and those in it. But it takes work to keep it going. And if we have government support for those institutions and their values and their rights, it's even stronger. This is the end of part one of our interview with Professor Leibowitz. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss part two. This has been an episode of Voices in Vulnerability. If you liked what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.